Okay, um, today's reading is from Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of the hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you can or whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called to the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are, you, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning, guys. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm the, the lead pastor here for Redemption Peoria. You guys already heard a little bit about what Peoria and Redemption um, is all about, and so I, w- I won't uh, say too much about that. But I'm, I'm glad you're here. I want to say this because I, I try to say this every week. If I don't know you, I really would like to get to know you. We're a young church plant, guys. Uh, we've only been going for about four months now, and uh, I, I recognize that I don't know everybody, and, and everybody doesn't know who I am. And so I'll be in the lobby afterwards. I really would love to, to get to know you. Um, uh, shake your hand, get to know your family, and, and, uh, and at least let you know that we're glad you're here. Um, if you already haven't opened your Bible, you can open up to Mark 7. Uh, what Chris, Christina just read is a long passage, and we've got a lot to go through this morning. And because of that, um, I don't want to waste too much time. Um, I just want to kind of jump right in, in it, if that's cool with you guys. If you haven't been here, um, we've been going through the book of Mark, and we've kind of said the same thing every week. And if you've been here from the beginning, you, you know what I'm going to say. But we decided to go through the book of Mark because we want to say 
Um, as a church, we are about Jesus, and, and we felt like the best way to do that is to find out who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And for us to read the Gospel of Mark, what we find is it's this narrative. So four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, are different ways to, to, to see different writers who are, who are writing this account of Jesus' life. And in this account specifically, what you find is everyone who's encountering Jesus doesn't really know who he is. You have this glimpse in Mark 8, and then you have this glimpse at the end. But most, for the most part, demons are the ones who know who this guy is. And so he's coming along and he's establishing his kingdom. He's casting out demons and everything that he is doing. And what we, what we talked about most recently, everything that he is doing is about a Jesus as he spends time with his father who either serves people or suffers. This is the Christ that we've been seeing. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about how he has passed that mentality on to us as Christians, that, that we should push this idea of comfortability, consumeristic, um, homogenization, isolation, that, that it's about us, just all introspective moments and never thinking about anything else but, but, but ourselves, that we should be a people who serves our city, that we serve our communities, that we serve each other, that we give our lives away. And it's all because Jesus has set that template for us. And, and what he has done, what Mark has done, is really gave us a response as to why we should do that. So it's not fear. It's not, it's not because you have to, but it's because Jesus is full of compassion, that he looks at you, and even though we don't deserve his love, even though we fail, even though over and over, I follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I'm not a good dad sometimes, and I'm not a good husband sometimes. Because of that, Jesus looks at me with compassion, and, and my, my frozen heart just melts as the warm water of the gospel goes over it. And, and this is something that we're reminded, and, and this is something that, that we need to keep at the forefront of our mind, and this is something ultimately that, that Mark is going to continue to melee us with. Now, here's the thing. This morning, we're going to run into some peeps that we've, we've ran into before, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, um, and I think um, we have talked about legalism many times, if you've been with us from the beginning in, in, in Mark. And I've actually asked, like, hey, is that kind of your wheelhouse? You like talking about legalism? Listen, like, in the end, we're, the, the best thing about going through a book in the Bible is we don't really choose what we're going to talk about. If the Bible says we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it, right? So well, it's like, well, we went Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, right? No, like, there's no skipping over chapters. So if we continue to hit legalism, if we continue to talk about self-righteousness, it's not because I want to talk about it. It's because it continues to be addressed by Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do um, this morning. As a matter of fact, a, a, a scholar named William Barclay says, um, this passage that we're going to go uh, over, 1 through uh, 23, is the most revolutionary passage in all of the New Testament. That, 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 that what takes place in this passage changes the game in the way that we view our relationship with God from that moment on. And so I don't want to hype it up too much, but it's a big deal, right? Okay, so, so I'm, I'm going to go through this. Like I said, we've ran into the Pharisees before. I'm going to read our passage. Jesus just fed thousands of people. As he fed these thousands of people, people didn't really understand what was going on. The dude then walks on water. The disciples see him walk on water, and they're like, yeah, but what about the feeding of the 5,000? And so they're, they're kind of questioning, and then Jesus sees a crowd who comes up to be healed, and he's like, hey, listen, I know you want to be healed. I'm going to heal you, but it's more than just healing. You, you, you forgot. You, you can't see as to what was really going on when I fed you. It was physical food, but it was more than that, right? And so we've talked about that, and the Pharisees, as he has thousands and thousands of people following, start to hear this. There's murmurs of what's going on, this, this revolutionary named Jesus who's, who's up, uh, starting this uprising, and so people continue to come down. These Pharisees come down from Jerusalem, and they want to see what Jesus is all about. And so this is the encounter, again, that we find with Jesus 
and the Pharisees. Um, I'm really excited. And though I, I, um, and though I said to somebody, you know, you like talking about legalism. Um, I, I love that, that Jesus continues to address it because this is a big part of my story. Um, just being tied in and, and doing a lot of things. I mean, I've, if you grew up in church, I got saved in high school. I was just kind of thrown into it. And we're having like, you know, nail your Tupac CDs to the wall parties. And, um, you know, you're like, like legitimate, like you're going to hell if you watch Harry Potter stuff. And so, um, which is of course true. And so, um, so here, here it is, uh, Mark chapter seven, verse one, this is what it says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And then it goes into this big parentheses, right? Um, for the Pharisees and all the Jews did not do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they came and, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. The Pharisees and the Sadducees asked him, "Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition?" tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Let's stop real quick, and um, we're just going to continue. If this is your first time, we're going to read a section, and then we're going to um, talk about it. Let's, let's um, unpack this context. So now the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're about to, to eat together, and um, the, the Pharisees are looking at Jesus' disciples, and they walk in, and they, they start to eat. And, and this causes some, some things to go on in the Pharisees, because there's a lot of things that um, we may not be able to see in this context that we got to get our mind around. And, and one of these things is that the Jews, all the Jews, not just the Pharisees, have a lot of laws around following these laws. And, and what I mean by that is it says that, that these Pharisees always wash their hands before they eat. The, the, there's a book called the Mishnash, or um, an, another that's part of another uh, Hebrew word, the Talmud, which is these books that basically parallel the word of God. So, so um, washing your hands is in the Bible, in the Old Testament, but it's specifically for priests. And, and, and what would take place is um, they're told to wash their hands, right, in Exodus 30 and 40, I believe. And they're told to wash their hands. But what has happened is the pious Jews, not just the priests, started to see this. And so they started to wash their hands. And, and about 200 years before Jesus came on the earth, all the Jews suddenly, this, this, um, this law um, suddenly what, that was applied to a specific people suddenly is applied to everyone. And now the Jews, the Pharisees, are so afraid to touch that law, they have this Mishnah or this Talmud, which is these books that basically say, for us to, to, to not break the law, let's create laws around the law. So, I mean, we've seen this, right? To treat your body like a, like a temple means to blank, right? Now, even though blank is not the sin, treating your body is like a temple, we've said this is it. So for us to, to stay that far away from sin, here's the fence we create. And this, this Mishnah, this Talmud is these laws. And these laws would say, these outside laws would say that when they walk in, they'd hold their hands up and they would pour water um, from their fingertips down to their wrists and they would rub their hands together get all the dirt, rub their hands together, and then they would put their hands down, and then they would run, run water from their wrists down through their fingertips. And some of these Jews w- would do this between each course. They, they, would, they would take this very seriously. Matter of fact, there's two crazy stories. One, um, there was a, a, a rabbi who did not do this before he ate, and he was actually excommunicated from the priesthood. Legitimately, because he did not wash his hands in a proper way, he was actually asked to leave the pharisaical sect of, of, of that community, Right? And then there's another who on the complete opposite side was under Roman imprisonment, um, was given water and bread to eat, but almost dehydrated because he held to the tradition so much that he, he would wash his hands. He would use his drinking water to wash his hands and he almost died. So you have this like, they take this really serious. This isn't something that's around. 
And here are Jesus' disciples walking in, grabbing some popcorn chimp and just throwing it in their mouth. And the, and the Pharisees are like, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you not washing your hands? And so they go to Jesus and they say, hey, why don't you hold, why don't they hold to, to the traditions of their elders? And, and I want, there's a couple words in here that I can help us um, get our mind around this. This, this word in uh, verse 3, where it says they wash their hands properly. This is the Mishnas, the Talmud. And they immediately identify, if you look at the end of verse 2, this defilement with being um, unwashed. So they say hands that are defiled, that is unwashed. So they're, they're equating, the Pharisees immediately are equating what's going on externally is, is changing. Is, it, it reflects what's, what's going on inside of them, right? And so that's going to be important as we continue to read our text. So um, with that being said, let's pick it up in verse 6. So the, the, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. Hey, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders, which the disciples are not breaking the law. They're just breaking the traditions of the elders of, of man. Verse 6 says this, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of, uh, of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the, command, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He immediately quotes um, in this passage right here, Isaiah uh, 29. Is it happening right now? Okay, don't get me excited. I'm just saying. Okay, we'll see you next week then. Okay. I'm just, it was, a, it was an honest question. Um, so, so, okay, so, so Jesus, Jesus is going to, let's reel it back in. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is, is going to do three things. He's going to respond in, in three kind of different ways with um, these Pharisees as they ask this question, right? Because they're pretty upset. The Pharisees are pretty upset that they're just seeing the disciples not follow these serious rules. And he goes about and he, he, he says three things that I want you to notice. First, he looks at them as he quotes Isaiah 29. He says, you're, you're hypocrites. He makes another statement in verse 9. In vain do they worship me. And then in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. So, so let's talk about this very quickly. I think um, any of you guys who had spent time maybe in theater, you know where this word hypocrite comes from, but maybe some of us don't. Um, he immediately looks at them and says, you're a hypocrite, which is two Greek words actually pushed together. Hypo, which means under, it's, it's under something, um, and krino, which is uh, to judge. So hypocrino, it's, it's this idea that you judge under. Literally, the idea is that you wear a mask, that under who you are, you, you look through this mask, and you have this facade on, and you see these other people, and you're judging under that mask. You're, you're acting. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, you're, you're putting on a show. You're, you're acting like you're this righteous, pious people, but the reality is there's something more going on under your mask. And then he makes a crazy statement that he would say that, that their worship, their worship is in vain. Like what they're doing is pointless. How you're trying to get all your ducks in a row and get it right externally is pointless. You're wasting your time. Um, I, I listened to a, a, a really awesome podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's called Radio Lab. And um, I would highly, if you like, just enjoy stories. It's a, a really cool um, podcast. And back in January, in this, um, one of these podcasts, they talked about the origin of football. And um, they were just talking about very early in the, the 1800s how it was way more not what it is now. I mean, people were dying. Like, it was way like, worse than rugby and essentially what had happened, it was usually a Harvard's and Yale's big-time schools like that had these, these strapping young lads, right, who, who would um, compete in football. Um, and there's a guy named uh, Richard Pratt, 
who started a school called Carlisle in Pennsylvania. And um, essentially what he wanted to do, you have to understand this is um, uh, at the end of the 1800s, as the 1800s is beginning to wind down, the Native American population is, um, for all intents and purposes, slowly as a people group becoming extinct, right? If you know anything about our American history, slowly but surely the white man is taking over all the Native American, um, all, all their land. And um, uh, Richard Pratt sees what's going on, um, and not, not necessarily because he has sympathy. I mean, I don't want to judge his heart. Maybe he does. But he sees this, that these people are becoming extinct. And so he wants to, in his words, whiteitize the Native Americans. And so he goes to families and he would say, hey, um, let, let, me, let me take your, your, um, your son or your daughter or even all of you as a family. Attend our school, this Carlisle school. And the mantra of the school, literally, this was their school, was kill the Indians, save the man. The idea would be that this is who we want to, to become. And, and um, if you ever go onto Radio Lab's website, oh, he's already throwing up pictures. Perfect. So, um, so you can actually see these pictures as they would take these Native Americans. And as he goes through these, here's what I want you to know. Um, these people, the, these, these, the white man, right, would see these Native Americans as like bushly, as uneducated, ungodly. They're, they're, they, they need help. And what they would do is they would take them, and you can continue to scroll through. Um, they would take them, they would take them, take off their garments, take all those things, and they would whiteitize them. They, they would fancy them up. Now, you have to understand, obviously, we would disagree that to them this, there's an evil there, right? But, but um, uh, from their perspective, everything that is represented on the left-hand side of the screen is everything that they're not. And in their mind, if they can teach them English, they can put the right boots on their feet, if they can put suits on their body, if they can part their hair, then suddenly they're better people. Now, now what's crazy outside of just the general, like, the terribleness of, of even that part of um, our, our, our history is that's, that's ridiculous. Because this guy, whose name was eventually changed to Tom, right? His, his Tom, I don't know his original Native American name. Um, when, when he has this picture to the right, does he cease to be Native American? No. He's still Native American. Like, like just because you taught him English... Just because you put different clothes on him, just because he looks different from an external perspective, doesn't make him better. Now, we usually don't show pictures. We're not like a a big picture or video uh, um, thing, and maybe we will more in the future. But I I want you to see these pictures because this is exactly what's happening in in the, the, the minds of the Pharisees. That there is this ungodly, untamed, um, need help type of, and the way we can do it is we can fix our externalness. We can change how we look on the outside, how we talk, what we say we do and don't do. We can continue to to modify those behaviors, but in the end, it's not changing who you are. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he's saying, listen, you're you're leaving the commandments of God. Um, In vain are you worshiping because you're doing these things, which is going to have a cause to stop now um, because I I think here's the the big point that I want to kind of nail down before we go into our text. I want to talk about us specifically. Like, it's hard for us to hear this um, and really get out the context and, and translate it to our life. And, and here's what I mean. Um, I don't know how, I, I have no idea how, from an outsider's perspective, Christianity has become the very thing that the creator, the author, the founder of Christianity was against. What I, what I mean by that, from an outsider's perspective, Christians are seen as people who get it right, they do the right thing. Um, oh, you think you're better than me. Don't judge me because I do these things. How it became that makes zero sense. Makes absolutely no sense. 
until you walk into a church. And then suddenly it makes perfect sense. Because the church is the perfect place for people like this to hide, isn't it? Like, like nowhere at any point in church did we go, hey, listen, I've never had to sit down with someone and go, man, like, you're just, you're praying an hour a day, you're reading your Bible an hour a day. That's really worrying me, man. That's nowhere ever I go like, man, you, you memorized 10 verses this week and fasted. Uh, hey, can we get together for lunch? Like, that's never happened. That's, that's, and, 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 and the razor's edge that we continue to, to, to walk and we struggle. And not only are, are we, we not um, rebuked for the right things that we do, but, but man, I've been in situations where I've literally, um, as a youth pastor, been forced to give away gold medals to people who've memorized books in the Bible or who gave a certain amount of money. So it's not that uh, uh, the church doesn't just foster this, hey, um, negative, but it's also, we kind of like tend to, to breed this idea of when you do the right things, it's celebrated. But there's this razor edge, right? Because, um, uh, it's hard to tell the person who's doing the right thing for the right reason and the right thing for the wrong reason. So, so this makes it real easy because you and I and our self-righteousness can hide, can't we? We can be moralistic deists, meaning we could do all the right thing, but we don't believe God is absolutely involved into our life. We can separate God, and, and he's there, but he's so far away, but he doesn't really know what's going on in my heart. Instead of being people who are gospel-motivated, like absolutely gospel-centered, um, action-oriented type of people, Th- those things look the same. Being motivated by the love of Jesus Christ and being motivated by self-worth absolutely look the same. So how do we do this? How do we begin to to expose our heart to these things? And and fortunately, Jesus is going to walk us through this, specifically um, what this looks like. He's going to give us an example, which I I think is is helpful um, in some of this. As he picks it in verse 9, he says this, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the command of God um, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever, uh, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. We'll talk about that in a second. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So let, let, let's talk about this very quickly. Um, there's this word in here, Corbin, and Jesus basically says, hey, you, you recognize, um, and now most of us know, maybe you've heard the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. Um, and so we have the law. Here's the law, honor your father and mother. And um, the Jews in this moment break that law by doing something else. And here's what they're doing. Our oldest son is, is named Corbin. It's actually from this text. It's why we spell it C-O-R-B-A-N, not B-I-N. Um, because this, this word means gift devoted to God. It would be like, Naming your kid love offering or tithe or something. I don't know. So um, it's this idea that what I have, I'm, I'm giving to God. It, in some instances, it would be like a temple tax. As you walk in, I'm giving this gift to God, okay? And what the, what the Pharisees are doing in this moment is they're saying this. Um, hey, we recognize that we're to honor your father and mother, but here's what you can do. You have your money, and instead of taking care of your parents as they get old, which is huge in this culture, um, taking, parents as, taking care of your parents as you get old, the money you would use to take care of them, you can just give to the temple, and it counts as Corbin. And it's their way of getting around the law. It's their way of sidestepping the law which we can, can, can begin to, to see, one, which is ridiculous, right, that someone would just want to take your money for themselves to get a jet or something. That's crazy. Now, we don't know anything about that. But more than that, um, what we can see what's taking place is suddenly 
following the law be, became about the Pharisees. It became about the Jews to, 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 to twist things. So, so I want to I talk about, there's two words that I really want to nail down as we move forward in this. There's two words that um, um, can continue to be redundant that we've heard in our culture. But let me just explain the difference in, in how these things lie, laid out. And, and one is religion and, and the other is the gospel. Because um, maybe you're not a Christian in here and uh, you would ask normally, hey, like, are you religious? Um, and in asking religious, I, I think immediately um, the, the kind of the Christians who are, like, are really Christians would go, I'm not religious. I got a relationship, right? So, um, but, but I, I want to talk about um, th- this idea of, of religiousness. I, I um, stole this from uh, a pastor in Manhattan named Tim Keller. I'm actually going to say a quote from him um, in a little bit. But I, I just want to talk to you about the difference of what we can begin to see as Jesus is giving us an example uh, with this use of Corbin. Here's, here's what he says. Religiousness, um, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Where the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Where with the gospel, motivation is based on grateful joy. With religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. But with the gospel, I obey God to get God to delight and resemble him. With religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry with God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. But the gospel says when circumstances do not go your way or go wrong, I struggle, but I know my punishment fell on Jesus and that while God may allow this for a training for me, he will exercise his fatherly love in these trials. Religion says when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's, it's crucial, it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to my self-image must be destroyed at all costs. But the gospel says when I'm criticized, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built up on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says my prayer life consists largely of petition, and it only heats up when I am in a time of need. My main purpose of prayer is to control the environment around me, where the gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. And lastly, uh, religion says my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those who perceive I perceive as lazy or immoral. Where the gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I am saved by sheer grace. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different for me. Only by grace I am what I am. And, and, and this, is, this is a big difference because I think as we read that list, I know that my heart immediately gravitates towards some of the the religious part of that. And and here's the trick in this. Hear me. Your proclivity is that. The the propensity of your heart, the the knee-jerk reaction of your heart is religion. Think of every every other sphere in your life. In school, it matters how hard you work. At work, it matters how hard you work. You're given grades. You're climbing up the corporate ladder Everything in the world's economy equates to this idea of do, do, so you can earn, earn, get the raise, work harder, get it right. And yet the gospel says, and it's not dependent on how hard you work. Uh, he goes on, and, and I think this might be helpful in verse 14 because um, he's going to begin to, Jesus is going to begin to unpack um, big time examples for us as we begin to to, uh, land the plane in some ways. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come from out of a person are what defile him. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, 
then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from um, outside cannot defile him since it enters in, uh, not in his heart, but his stomach and it is expelled? Thus he declared all foods, uh, foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So just kind of breaking down, Jesus is looking at his disciples. The people don't get it. His disciples don't get it. He says, how do you still not understand what I'm saying? Let me give you a practical example. The Jews say, um, don't eat this. Don't do this, which the Old Testament does give a lot of parameters about what you can and can't eat. And Jesus in this moment is going to, in the parentheses, declare all food clean. We see more of this with Peter and Acts, all food clean. But, but what's happening here is the Jews are saying, what you put inside of your body or how you wash your hands or these external things, what go inside of you is what matters. And Jesus says, no, like, think about it. That's not what defiles you. So when, when the Pharisees said, my disciples are defiled because they had unclean hands, they're wrong. Now, he's obviously not talking about, like, a physical defilement, right? I mean, so uh, we, uh, Candace and I, are trying to become hipsters, and um, we're trying to, like, really be, like, bohemian, and, like, we want a garden. And so we have this garden. We have this garden, and we're growing stuff. And um, yesterday, I was all jacked because I go out to my garden, right? And I, um, I get, some, um, I get some, some, some vegetables out, and I start making a smoothie, right? I'm super jacked about it, okay? And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, so um, what I think was char, so I take some char and I put it in the blender and I'm like, uh, put some bananas in there. I'm really excited, right? And so I'm giving it out to the kids. Um, later, Candace goes out and we have these two big leaves and, and she find out, finds out it's rhubarb, which is totally fine if you're eating the stems. If, if you eat the leaves, it ha- so happens that they're poisonous. Um, and so Candace's like, hey, rhubarb. So we go on Google and it's just like emergency room immediately, right? And I'm like, and just like not even an hour before this, I'm like, Corbin, finish your smoothie, Okay. So I'm like, here I am trying to poison my children, and, and, uh, and, and it's clear, like, what I do put in my body does physically defile me, right? I mean, we would be foolish to go, like, if I eat all the wrong things, I'm physically being defiled. So there's obviously more than Jesus just talked. He's talking about a spiritual defilement here, obviously, right? So it's, it's not what you do with these external things, because in the, in the end, those external things do not change the heart. And I love how he finishes it. Um, uh, w- with that passage, and he says, said, it enters the heart, but, and not the stomach, it's expelled. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So this, this is uh, big time for us, right? This is where we can start to really understand, get, get our hands around legalism. Um, because uh, for some of us, um, the way that we can see our, our, our legalistic tendencies is that we see people walk into this room and we say, man, that girl, her, 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 her skirt is, is too short or, or she shouldn't be wearing that. Or, or we see a guy in the way that he's talking and we suddenly, from our perspective, like hypocrites behind a church mask begin to point at people because of the movies they watch, the cigarettes they smoke, um, the way they dress, and there is this, this pulling back of the, uh, of the curtain for Jesus to go, it's not these external things that God looks down and goes, yes, she's wearing a turtleneck and a long skirt. I am happy with her in this moment. That, that's not what happens. Matter of fact, he goes on to say perfectly in verse 21, for from within out of the hearts of man comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Hear this. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. <laughs> Game changer. Because we can look at that list and go, I- I'm doing that. Like, like there are days when I covet. 
There are days when I'm an adulterer. There are days when I, when I do things in, in anger. There, there are days when, when I'm uh, envious of people. There, I look at this list and it says, I see these things. And what Jesus just said, it's not when you do these things. It's where these things are coming from. So, so check it out. The, the Jews are trying to solve the problem, but the problem is way bigger than they think. They've gone to the doctor and they think it's just skin cancer. If I can just get this removed from me, but that cancer has gone deep within your heart and you can't, you can't go into the heart and take out the cancer. There's only one way to save you at this point. You have to have a heart transplant. You have to have somebody go in much deeper. And the problem is we, we don't understand the problem. The, the problem is as legalists, as fundamental traditionalists at moments where we find our, our, our pride and joy in so many of those things, instead of letting that be a fruit of the gospel, the problem being that our hearts, what Jesus in this moment, that's where those things come from. So instead of you white-knuckling your way to go, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm not going to look anymore, I'm not going to turn on the computer, I'm not going to be envious, I'm not going to be angry, and you might be able to for a while do it well. You might be a while for a moment be a good person. I, I, I'm going to do this, but in the end, what Jesus just said is, you can do that over and over and over again, but something else has to change because your heart, as Jeremiah seventeen nine says, is naturally wicked. It's from your heart that these things are coming. It's from your heart that you, that, that you continue to try to fix the external, but your heart is messed up. And you say, but I don't know how to fix it. I can't. I recognize that I'm, I'm doing these things, and I, I feel like I've tried over and over and over again to fix these things, and I'm just sitting here saying, like, listen, if it was based on you, then the cross would be null and void. Like he saved you, Titus 2, 3, that he saved you not by you, not because of you, not done in works of righteousness, but as a gift. This is not you saying, now I'm not an envious person, now I'm not angry, now I'm not prideful, now I'm not lustful, now I'm not an adulterer. That's not what it's about. It's in that moment for Jesus to go, yeah, yeah, listen, listen, hear me. Like I sin, I absolutely sin, but I hate it. I hate it so much, not just because um, it, the, the way it makes me look, but because I recognize that Jesus in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all, in, in the moment of honesty, he took what I'm doing every click of the mouse. He, he took that on the cross. Like I should be punished. And suddenly like it's only the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit on your heart that can change those actions. So, so you say, I want to stop being lazy envious, angry, murderous in my heart. I want to stop being those things. Then listen, you got to go deeper. You, you have to do more than just your external actions. Uh, this becomes um, clear uh, because I think there's some people in this room that maybe would disagree with that. Matter of fact, um, statistically, it's probably true that, that the assumption Jesus is bringing to the table, you would probably disagree with. That your heart is what's, what's wicked. That your heart is naturally defiled. I'm not foolish into thinking that everyone would agree with that, right? So, so um, let me just kind of kindly say this for those of you who are sitting in the room going, no, I, 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 I'm not naturally wicked. I don't, I don't, I don't, like, evil doesn't come, defilement doesn't come from within me. Like, maybe I'm a product of my circumstances and, or, or, or whatever it is, and, and, and I, I disagree with that assumption that Jesus is bringing to the table. And I, I can't change the way you think. I, 
Um, maybe in some ways, I said I was going to quote uh, Keller, Tim Keller, this pastor of Manhattan. Maybe in some ways this quote will help you. This is what it says. Um, Though we've abandoned the ancient categories, he's talking about sin. So in our culture, it's clear that we don't believe in sin predominantly. We would not say we're, we're sinful people. Though we've abandoned those ancient categories, we still have a profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we'd be rejected. We have a deep sense that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what people know about us. Secretly, we feel, secretly, we feel that we aren't acceptable, that we have to prove to ourselves and to other people that we're worthy, lovable, valuable. And I think maybe in your moments of honesty, um, because I would reject, like you, for a long time that idea that I was a wicked person. But when, when push came to shove, um, what, what the text has shown me today, that, that I could be getting it right for the wrong reasons. I could be serving God in vain. So though you hide behind the facade of a good person, just because you do good things does not make you a good person. Whatever, whatever motivation that you are doing those good things from is, is what Jesus is saying matters. And though we can, we can get all these things right, it doesn't change at the very core of what Jesus has done. So um, I, I love the idea that this can be a mantra for us. And this is how I'll close. Because the truth is, um, if you were raised in church, um, you, you can play the game really well. <laughs> really well. You know, as a youth pastor for five years, and I've seen kids play the game. And so there's no way for us, in, 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 like, I can't look at the depths of your heart. You can continue to do the right things over and over, which are good things. But you know, you know why you're doing these things. And, and, and what, what, I, what I would just plead with you is to recognize that when I sit down in a community with guys, and we split up guys, girls, um, if in the moments that I am brutally honest about how sinful I am, if in those moments I'm everything but a liar, Everything but a liar. Here's what I am. I'm I'm all these things, but I'm not going to lie about those things. In those moments when I am honest, what it does to the real Christians in the room, their heart begins to beat. It begins to pound because suddenly there's a freedom. Wait wait a minute. I don't don't have to hide behind the the, the good things I do. and, And it's okay that I do these bad things. That in that moment, we would be a church that goes, listen, here's what I am. Ask, like, as, the, as the lead pastor of this church, ask the guys in my community. I'm honest about where I'm at. I, I put in front of them, here's my sins. Here's what I'm doing. Here's where I can't get it right. I need help. I have to sit down with my son in moments ago. But you can see how daddy needs the gospel too. I, I yelled. I, I shouldn't have done that. In these moments, honesty, it, it breeds this beautiful display of true gospel action. That you go, yes, I, I sin. But I'm, but I'm not a sinner. Like, 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 like in my old life, I, I do some of those things, and sometimes there's residual effects of that thing, but I'm fighting it because Jesus is good, and I hate that I continue to do it, and I need to be held accountable for, for, for how I do it. This is the type of atmosphere I want to breed, and, and um, you know I can't leave you without giving you a quote from my man Spurgeon. Um, th- this, is, this is what it says. Did they put my man Spurgeon? No. I heart Spurgeon. <laughs> you dirty snake. Um, So, this is what he says. If I had ever, if I never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. The moment I did join it, if I found one, 
I should have spoiled it, for it would have not have been perfect church after I had, I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. My hope in this is that we would breathe like the disciples, honest moments to go, I'm just here, I'm going to eat, and if I'm doing it wrong, tell me, but I don't want to get caught up in legalism. You know what helps us as a church as we do this together and our heart begins to pump towards honesty and openness and that we would fight sin for all the right reasons, that we recognize that when we scatter to our jobs, when we scatter to our schools, when we scatter with our families, we don't sit next to the person who smokes the cigarettes, who, who does terrible on their calls in that next cubicle, who says all the wrong things, uses all the wrong language, listens to all the wrong music, watches all the wrong movies. We don't see that because the only difference in that moment is that you have Jesus and deep within you, your propensities to do all those same things. And our mission becomes so much more freeing because you don't have to be this perfect person, that you don't have to have this facade anymore. And I think this is the plead from Jesus to all of us that we'd be honest, that we'd recognize these wicked things come from within. And we can continue to be Pharisees over and over and over, but it changes nothing. Only the gospel, only the gospel can change. And can you hear Jesus's anger when he looks at the Pharisees and says that? Because in the moments when, when you like the Pharisees or I like the Pharisees say, no, 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 I can do all the right things. Jesus is so angry because he knows what it's going to cost him. Give it 10 more chapters. He knows what's going to cost him in the end to bring this freedom. And if you in this moment, Jesus pays this price, you in this moment goes, no, I got it. Then the cross is null and void. Then what's the purpose? Then why did he need to die? Jesus, your sacrifice in about eight chapters is going to be pointless because I wash my hands properly. This is why he gets so angry because it's absolutely antithetical to the gospel. Why we hold to absolutely tight to it. May we remember this. May it free us. May we be true Christians in every uh, right of the word. Let me pray for us. And as you bow your head, um, and as I pray, I'm going to read a passage to close us in Romans chapter five. It's five verses. It starts in verse six. I just want you to listen to this. As you close your eyes, we would say that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God in Romans ten seventeen. And in this moment, as you listen to the word of God, that you would believe the words that are being said because they are true. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Listen to verse 11, the last verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, thank you so much for who you are. That, that passage, that it's through you, Jesus. It's through you that we receive reconciliation, that it's through your cross, it's through your blood, it's through what you've done. It's, it's in those moments that, we, uh, that we, we lend our hand towards legalism. It's in the moments that we lend our hand towards doing the right thing for the wrong reasons that we desperately, desperately need your help. Holy Spirit, remind us of the things that Jesus has spoken 
continue to put the gospel, melee us with the gospel over and over. It's your work, it's your work, it's your work, it's your work, it's your work. May that be the mantra of our heart. It's, it's not how we change, it's not what we do, and the reason why you love us. And because of that, may that motivate gospel-centered action. May that motivate grace-infused reaction. May we be a people who do the right things because the right thing has been done on the cross. May we be a people who love you well and our mission well because you came to the earth and you became poor so that we might become rich. May we follow in your footsteps in leaning on your Father and not our self-righteousness. May we be countercultural in the idea that we can earn anything we have because we are broken people and our hearts are messed up. Help us. Help us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We desperately, desperately, desperately need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.